We're thinking about the matter concerning the life of faith. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me, and the life I now live in the flesh. He's talking about that time that we have on this earth, after conversion and before we go to be with the Lord. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We've been looking and asking the question, what does that actually look like? What is that, that experience? And let me again say, say this each week, I am kind of dividing up things which are all a unit. We're looking at it from different perspectives, but it's, it's one life, and it's mixed, and they cross the different areas that I come up with. They cross a bit. We've already talked about the fact that that life is a life of courage, because if I'm living by faith, I take hold of the fact that my life, when I put it in God's hands, is in God's hands. There's a tremendous one. It's great to know tonight that Carol Richardson put her life in God's hands, and it is in his safe hands tonight. No matter what happens, it will be safely kept there, because that's the promise of God. Because of that, she could have courage, right? Courage to face the unknown, to face a world which is bigger than we are because God's in control of it, and he is our God. And we saw last week, there's another dimension of that, because in this life, we don't only have to have the courage to face life, but we have to have the enabling to do the things that are required of us, to fulfill our obligations. And we found out this, that here's the life of faith, that I trust the living Christ to meet me in such a way that he pours in the power when I need it to fulfill the purposes that he has for my life. Now, as we go through all that, brings up another question as you're you're thinking about it because it moves us then into another area because as we trust the Lord for that we also find out that much to our dismay chagrin pain whatever you want to put it at that there that we are meeting opposition inside of our own soul to that taking place there's something to be overcome in order to do it And that brings us to this question of the matter of sanctification. That's a big word, sanctification. What did you know? Here we go. Let's, let's, that word just means that God is in the process of making us holy, which is another word which we have a very strength. Well, let's say uh, we're, we're kind of removed from that word. It's a word we use, but what exactly does it mean? And that's what we want to think about tonight. This process by which God makes us, and we're going to put it this way to start, the process by which he makes us more like the character of his son. He puts into us something that looks like the Lord Jesus Christ, because it is the Lord Jesus Christ. That process is called sanctification. Now, we're going to ask a couple questions about it tonight, and again, I'm going to get back here because I'm going to have to go through a number of verses. So I'm actually going to have to stand behind the podium for a while. Now I'm going to prove that by the grace of God I can do that too. And I just got ready to leave, but I'm not going to do it. All right? What is the sanctification? If we're going to talk about it, is it important at all? And I want to say that because I'm increasingly running into situations in which people, in order to to comfort other brothers and sisters, seem to downplay the whole idea of actually being holy. I've run into people that suggest that you can get there. Almost they're afraid of it. I don't want to be holier than somebody else. I want to be holier than now. And again, I'm not saying that you want to 
present yourself as holy, but I'm saying this. You are only valuable on this earth when you're set apart for God, and that's what it means to be holy. And he fully intended from the time you were converted, way before you were converted, he fully intended on this earth as far as it's possible to make you look just like Jesus Christ. That is his will. First thing we want to do is see that that's his will. Because, again, at times, I wonder whether people even are aiming at that, whether they're ready to fight that which is within and deal with it. So let's look at a couple passages. I want to go to Romans chapter 4. And, again, we're going to be doing some skipping around here tonight just to look at different passages. This is God's purpose for you. All right? In chapter 8, this is Romans chapter 8, verse 4, Paul is describing, he's summing up the benefit of the gospel. He started off this section by saying, there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. That's to say that there is, we are in a place of justification. It's true, we're justified. And so he rejoices in that. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. He's been describing that in the chapters leading up to chapter 8. But then he said, for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. So he sent the Lord to this earth, and as, sin, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. And he says, this is the reason he did it, the purpose that he had. He says, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. We're not going to expound that right now. We are going to come back to that next week and look at that passage in more detail. But let me say this much about it. There are two viewpoints on that, the requirement of the law being fulfilled. On one side are those that would isolate that to justification, that it's through the process of justification that the requirement of the law is fulfilled. And that's true. It is through the process of justification. And we could probably say that that's what it was, except that Paul finishes the sentence by saying this, that it's fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. That throws a monkey wrench in it. Because you are not justified by the way you walk. You are justified by faith in Jesus Christ. It is when you come in an act of repentance and faith and entrust yourself to him, and in that alone, that you are justified and given that standing. So to say then that, uh, that we are justified, that the, the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who don't walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, it would be confusing things. And I don't think Paul is, is trying at all to confuse things here. What he's saying is that God has a purpose. He had a purpose from the beginning that we should not only be justified. That's the beginning. We have to be justified in order for this to take place. But he wants us to live. God wants you to experience life. And unless the power of sin is broken in your life, you are not really living. The man who sins, says the Lord himself, is a slave of sin. And the Son came to set you free. And if the Son sets you free, you will actually be free. That's tremendous, isn't it? But anyway, back to the the verse here. He says that in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, that's the purpose of the Father sending the Son. We'll come back to that a little bit more next week. I want to go to another passage. Ephesians chapter 4, the purpose of God in the goal of the ministry in the church, in, 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 
In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul is speaking about the gifts of the Spirit and how the church works and why those gifts were given. We're going to pick it up in verse 13, all right? He's talking about the gifts and how they are given for, well, let's go back to verse 12, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until, and this is what he said, this is the purpose of all that, until we all attain to the unity of the faith. Let's all, all understand the faith. And of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, and he finishes out by saying this, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. What a calling. That's the purpose of us being in churches. That's the purpose of the interaction of the body of Christ. This is not a church, but this is an interaction of the body of Christ. What is the purpose that I have tonight? What what goal could we have? That every person in this room should come to a place where the fullness of the blessing that is yours because you're in Christ is appropriated, becomes yours so that you look like Jesus Christ until we all attain to it. Not just some of us. Not just the spiritual giants, not just the pastors, not just the elders, not just the ones who are in the, in the forefront, but every last person in the church achieves that. That's the reason we function together. That's the reason we have these meetings, is so that somehow we can, we can do that together. But not only is that something that I am doing for you in speaking the word of God, but you're doing for each other. You're doing for me. Right? Because in the church, it works both directions. Nobody is a, an island who doesn't need help. Everybody needs the interaction. And as we interact, the goal of that interaction is to press us all towards that place where the richness of our life in Christ becomes ours. We are practically righteous. That's that part. Okay, now let's go to another passage. Because we're just demonstrating that God intends for the sanctification to take place. And that um, if it isn't taking place, we have reason to be concerned and we need to take action. This is in First John. This next passage, this is the, perp- the, the goal of the Lord's own work. This is the way he, it's put concerning him. First, in the first passage, it was the Father, but here it's the Lord himself. <clears throat> and we're going to begin reading in chapter 3, verse 4. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. For you know that he appeared, that is, the Lord came, in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. No one in, who, who abides in him sins. Now, be careful here what we said. When it says that a sin, this does mean in this particular passage, as a pattern, as a habit, as a way of life. They don't continue in that. He says, nobody, and we go get this, no one who abides in him. And in, in John's economy, the people who abide in him are like, I am the vine. You're the branches. You're abiding there. You're put in there. Okay. So he says, no one who abides in him uh, and no one who, who sins has seen him or knows him. And here comes a, a verse which we need to think about when we're thinking about, is it sanctification important? Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices is righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous the one who practices sin 
Again, this has to do with your pattern of life is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. Now, here's the, the part of the passage I want us to get really hold of tonight. For the Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. One of my favorite verses. That's what Jesus Christ came to do. This is, this is kind of parallel with the thought that comes in, the Lord is my shepherd. He's the one that restores our souls. Why? Because when we were converted, before we were converted, and while we were in this world, the devil took hold of us. He was in control of this world, and he warped and twisted and tore and destroyed. And he built into human beings warped ways of thinking, destructive patterns of behavior. He built works. That's the idea. He builds up a citadel, a fortress. Jesus Christ comes and the Spirit of God illuminates that message to a person. And when it's illuminated, they're set free from the, the bondage to all that. But then there's a process that has to take place. All those things that have been built up against the knowledge of God have to be destroyed. And get this picture of Jesus Christ coming in and he comes to destroy it. And the thought of destroying is tear it back down. Isn't that tremendous? He came to tear out all those perversions that the devil had built into our souls, built into our experience. That's tremendous. Because if the Son comes to set you free, what? you'll be free indeed. And, and I kind of like it as a violent picture. You can look at it any way you want to. I kind of like it as a picture like Jesus going through the temple. A temple which was meant to be a place where people met with God and wanted to become a marketplace for thieves. <laughs> a marketplace for thieves. And you know what he did in that marketplace for thieves? He went through it with a whip and flipped tables. <laughs> he wreaked havoc, drove them all out of there. Good picture, huh? Does God care about sanctification? Yes, he does care about sanctification. It was his purpose in the gospel, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. It is his purpose in the church that we would work together by the power of the Spirit of God with those gifts that we have in order to encourage everybody and to take everybody as high as they can go and to see the fullness of that salvation worked out. It is the purpose of the Son of God to come into our lives and rip down all that junk that the devil put in there. Tremendous. All right. So that's, I just, I'm putting that in because I think we need to be real clear in our faith. God does intend for us to be righteous. And the one who begins the good work at, the, at conversion is going to carry it out right through. Now, what is the nature of that? That's the next question we have. If, if that's what, if it's important and that's what's going to take place, we're, we're going to have sanctification. We're going to be made holy. What is the nature of that holiness, and I want to go back again to think just a moment about that verse in Romans chapter eight. Said he um, that the righteousness of the law might be worked out or fulfilled in us who don't walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So a question comes up at this point: What is the righteousness of the law? Right. If I am, if the fullness of the Old Testament law is fulfilled in me, what is fulfilled in me? 
That's a good question, which we have to stop and think, because if we're going to understand how God does it, we have to understand what he's going to do, what he's after as he performs this. So let's go and look at another passage. This was in Exodus chapter 19, verse 3. Exodus chapter 19, verse 3. The Old Testament law is recorded in the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's a lot of law, right? I think that if I remember correctly, it was something like it's over 600 different commands that the rabbis had figured out were in that. 600 different things that if I was keeping law, they were the things I was doing. But what is that, the essence of that law? Well, in order to really grasp it and make sure that we see this, I want to go back to the place where the law was actually first established. This is the beginning. What's happened is the people of God have been and gone to different That part's pretty well known. They're in Egypt, remember, and Pharaoh's in control. And, and God comes down and takes them. He says, I'm going to take you out of here. And that they go through the Red Sea and all those things that we, we know about. They're not the people of God yet. They, they're the descendants of Abraham, but they haven't been the, co- the covenant of the nation has not been established yet. And he takes them out. And then they go in through the, through the desert of Sinai. It takes about three months. And they get to a place called Mount Sinai. right? And they come there. And it's at the base of that mountain that God starts to speak to them. And this is the very first thing he says concerning the law. This is the essence of the law. Let's read it. Um, in verse 3, Moses went up on the mountain. This is verse did I say chapter 19? I'm sorry. I don't think I said that. Anyway, 19, verse 3. Moses went up, to the, uh, went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the sons of Israel, You yourself have seen what I did to the Egyptians. All right? That's the story. We know the plagues and all the rest of it. They had you in bondage, and the promise that I gave to Abraham was those that bless you I will bless, and those who curse you I will curse, and just take a look at what happened. All right? So you know all about that, how I have fulfilled my word to you. You yourself have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle wings and brought you to myself. We'll go back over that story, but the eagle wing picture was one that they used at that time to describe because an eagle would would train its its eaglets to fly by kind of pushing them out of the nest, then flying under them and, and, and keeping with them until their wings had, until they had figured out how to do it. It was a picture that was used of the intense care of a parent for a child. It says, you saw how I bore you with eagle wings, but here's what I did. I took you out of Egypt to bring you to myself. Not to make you a nation, first of all. But first of all, I brought you to me. Right? I brought you to me. All right? And then he says this. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. I want you to note something other one says that, I, that you're going to be my possession. That's what holiness means. A holy thing. When it's, we're talking about God, it's a different program in a sense. But when we get to what God calls holy, a holy thing in the Bible is something that belongs to God. It is His private possession. And it, it will be used the way He says to use it. 
And so the question then would come up, if this, if we're there to be, he's called them out there to be a holy people unto him, what is the purpose? He, they're, the first thing, he drew them to himself so they could know him. Now, what is the purpose of that holiness? What is he going to do with them? All right, well, let's go back to it. Verse 6, And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You're going to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, again, as a kingdom of priests, this isn't just talking about the Old Testament priesthood. And again, to be very brief about it, a priest in the Old Testament was a person who came and got you and took you to God. When you went to the tabernacle, you didn't get to do it on your own. When you were, you were met at the door by a priest, and the priest knew what to do, and the priest takes you by the hand because he has special privilege with God. Because of his calling, he has the right to come, and he grabs you by the hand, and he takes you to God. And God said this, here's the purpose. I'm going to draw you to myself. But once I've drawn you to myself, here's what I'm going to make you, a holy nation, which is going to be on this earth a kingdom, a whole nation of priests. Your job is to get people and bring them to God. How about that for a calling? Now, that's the essence of the covenant. Because when this is done, if you read on, it says this, that then the people said, okay, all that he said, we'll do. They haven't heard it. He has not given all those 625 or whatever they are laws. They are still to come. But the people said, this is good for us. We, We like this situation. We are willing to be yours. And we are willing to serve you. You just name how it's going to take place. They signed a blank check. And God filled it in. But the essence of the Old Testament law was to be close to God and to serve him. Does that make sense? Now, of course, in the New Testament, that is, that is also reiterated. All right? The Lord in the New Testament tells us exactly the same thing. Uh, one of the places, we're going to refer to another one later on, but one of the places in Matthew chapter 22, let's just read that. Uh, so, well, let's not... Um, we're running out of time here. So I'm, going to, I'm just going to tell you what it says there because you all know this one. I've said it many times. A man comes to him and says, what is the first and great commandment? Here it was a spiritual test that he was giving him. And Jesus says, the first and great commandment is that you love the Lord your God with all your heart. And the second is like to it. This is a, this is a shortened version, all right? And the second is like to it. You love your neighbor as yourself. He says, and from those two, this is what he says, And from those two commandments, the entirety of the law is built. And you can kind of see that in that passage, right? That he drew drew them to himself. And he says, now serve me by helping other people. Help them come to God, because that's what a priest does. You're going to be a kingdom of them on this earth. See, the purpose of Israel wasn't to be an isolated nation which had a private relationship with God and was completely different. Their job was to live in such a way that other people came to know God. So they were going to live in love for God and in love for people around them. That's what the essence of the whole thing is. If the the requirement of the law, law is fulfilled in us, What will it mean in its essence? It will mean that we will love the Lord our God with all of our heart and we will love other people. Now, 
I want to say that a problem comes up in our thinking, which, again, we note a lot of times, but it's just so important to keep reiterating. We in the modern English world tend to use love as an emotion. We just tend to associate it almost directly with an emotional response to something. When God says that you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, this has to do with things that take place where you, you set your love on a situation. Now again, to demonstrate that in the human realm, I'll go back again to another situation where a, another man came and asked Jesus, how shall I get to eternal life? All right? And he says, well, what does the law say? Right? And he repeats what the Lord said. He says, well, you're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, and you're to love your neighbor as yourself. He said, good, that's it, go and do it. Now, you remember the story. Go and do it, and you'll know a life. And it says in the passage, but the man wishing to justify himself, right, wishing to, to prove that he was righteous, says, well, who is my neighbor? All right. And then we have a very famous story. Who is my neighbor? And you know the story. He says, well, there was a man going, going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Fell among robbers, beaten up, left along the side of the road is dead. Different men came by, and we won't go to all that part right now. But it's just funny, a Samaritan came by, looked at him, had compassion on him. All right? He had compassion. He's going to prove he's a neighbor, but he's going to love that man as himself. How is he going to do it? By having a, a heart reaction to that man? No. That man's in trouble. But it's also very dangerous. I don't know if you've ever been taught the whole story, but it, what he does here is very dangerous because that man was beaten up by robbers. And apparently he was a Jew. We're in a Jewish area, and Samaritans weren't the most uh, honored people in Jewish areas. He's a Samaritan. If this was a Jew and he got beat up, and anywhere around here, those same men could be sitting waiting for the next guy to come along. Stopping to help him is a very dangerous thing. But he put the needs of that man above his own needs. You see, in that he did that, he loved him. See, it wasn't how he felt about the man. It was the fact that he put himself in a dangerous place. He did what Paul says we ought to do, to regard another as more important than myself. Not that I think you're more important or less important. It's that when it comes down to practical realities, I honor you instead of taking care of me. And that's what that Samaritan does. And then he not only does that, but after he gets he puts him on his donkey. And then he takes him to an inn, and he pays for that man to be taken care of out of his own pocket. You see, when we're thinking about love, we're thinking about something which you perform, you do, you act out, you make choices. When God says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, you make a choice. And that gets us down to that third question, which is on that list. What is the essence? We're going to ask if, if the sanctifying work is done, what is the essential nature? of that sanctifying work. What question should we ask? Well, we should ask that one. Who do you love? 
Who do you love? Now, I'm, go- I'm going over this because next week we're going to talk about the mechanics of deliverance from sin and, and what God has done so we can trust him for all these things. But I'm a little bit concerned about that. Because if you don't understand the essence, the mechanics, I don't, sometimes don't work. I'm, I'm in to say they don't work in the sense that you're not aiming at the right thing. Because there are times when we simply want to, we have a habit that isn't particularly good and we want to get rid of it and we're ready to let God deal with this thing and that's, that's a good thing. But we don't see what's really behind all this. The question that's behind it is not just whether I become pure. The question is, do I really love God with all my heart? All right? Because you love something tonight. Every one of us is in that condition. The energies of your life are devoted somewhere. And when a person passes from darkness to light and God begins a work, he's going to move him. Before he was converted, those energies were devoted to his own well-being. All right? I said it many times here again. But modern thought that if I'm going to love everybody else like I love myself, then I need to love myself first, is completely foreign to the thinking of the Bible. It's completely foreign to the thinking of the Bible. That has to do with you feeling a certain way about yourself, feeling confidence in yourself. But you have been devoting your energies to you since you were born. We had a picture on our, in class. What, this is my view of it. You got yourself up here, and then here goes the rest of the human race. I'm most important than, than my family. Than, that's the way a human being works, apart from the grace of God, right? Take care of yourself and let everybody else, then, then I'll take care of those around me. But I'm kind of taking care of those around me because they affect my experience. And as you affect my experience less and less, you get less and less of my attention. Now, in one sense, you say, well, isn't that... It's impossible to go way out there. Yeah, it is, in a sense. You can't go too too far out with, what can I do for people that are in Nepal tonight? Not very much, right? I really don't have a whole lot of touch with the people in Nepal. But the point is this, what God wants to do is bring you to a place where you begin to think of him in the place up here. And then you begin to think about others as being more important, higher rank here than you. That's what he wants to do, because that's the law. That's the law. That's what God made you to be. Now, when he said that it's, it fulfills the law, we don't really like that word law. We don't really like it. I'm telling you, we don't like it. Okay, so that was it. You created for this. You were created to look like God. We were made in the image of God. And what kind of a being is God? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. What kind of a being is Jesus Christ? who, though being in the form of God, did not regard equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. He was more important than I was. But he regarded me as more important than himself. I am not more important, Jesus Christ. But he regarded me in that, and that's the essence of the glory of the heart of God. What does he want to do? He wants to print that into your life. And he wants to print that into my life. 
He wants to bring me to a place where that's the way I live. He's going to have to. There's, there's work to be done. But that is the pressure that the Spirit of God is going to put on you. The one who begins the good work is going to finish it. But what is the work going to be? It's going to be a work about love. And when we come to think about this whole matter of, of working with sin and, and confessing sin and getting over sin, we have to understand that right at the center of it is this idea of who do you love? Because you are never going to get free from sin until you love Jesus Christ. You won't get there. <laughs> Mr. Kelsey, it can't be done. If you don't love him... Your righteousness is going to be really short of the mark. It's always going to fail because it's going to be about you and your reputation or you and your feelings inside, you and your holiness. It's not going to be about the glory of God. So a question comes, you know, with regard to that. Now, is that biblical? Now, it's just, and you say, that's, that's not, but is it biblical? I want to go to a story that we all know again. These are all very important storybooks again. It's in chapter 21 of the book of John. Book of John. We're after the resurrection now. That's the last book in the book of, or last chapter in the book of John. Everything has taken place. The resurrection has taken place. And now the disciples have moved from Jerusalem. They've left there and they've gone back to Galilee. That's where they're from. And they're on the lake doing what they used to do. At least some of them were there. We don't know who all was there. John was there and Peter was there. And we don't know who all, all the characters were, but a group of them were there. And they are beside what Sea of Galilee, which is called there the Sea of Tiberias. Uh, and Tiberius. And as they're gathered there, the Lord comes to them. It's early morning. They were out fishing and hadn't caught anything. And... Uh, and it's a tremendous passage because it's, it's the restoration. In, involved in this is Peter being restored back to fellowship with the Lord because of his terrible sin. He had denied the Lord. He professed great love for the Lord, but he hadn't performed. He tried to perform. Always felt for him in this. He the raw end of the deal. But none of the other disciples denied the Lord. They were under a rock someplace. They didn't have the courage to show up, but he tried to stay with it and hung the, until he got into that place. And he looks at the whole thing, realizes it's going south, and hey, I gotta, I'm getting out of here and save my neck. Three times he denied the Lord. Now the Lord's coming to put him back into place. First of all, he reminds him of who he was, who the Lord is. It's very interesting that he recreated his initial call. Tremendous thing. He recreates it because he was initially called after a night of fishing where he didn't catch any fish. And Jesus, this is way back before the crucifixion, way back when Peter first called, now cast your nets over here. He said, okay, we will. And they brought in this great catch of fish. Now they haven't caught anything again. He says, they caught anything, boys? No, we haven't caught anything. Well, cast your net over there. And as soon as they cast the net and they pull it and they get that jerk piece, they say, whoa, it's the Lord. He's reminded of everything that God had called him to be. Everything he had tried to be and had failed on. But God's calling because he's, he's kind of wavering as to whether he's going to go on with this. Can he go on with it? How can he lead a group of people? Because he was the leader of the group. How can he lead a group of people when he had denied the Lord at the crucial moment? So Peter, so 
comes along the shore, then comes this moment. They're all eating. It's very important to note everybody's there. They're at breakfast, and right as breakfast is finishing, we don't know who all the disciples are there, but Peter and John are there, and the Lord looks at you, Peter, in front of everybody, and asks that haunting question. Peter, do you love me more than these? He didn't ask him, Peter, why did you deny me? What was going wrong? Are you a coward? He doesn't, he doesn't accuse him of anything. He just wants to know one thing. There's only one question which is going to bring him back into the place where he needs to be. Peter, do you love me? Now, we're not going to think tonight about what it means that this question there, do you love me more than these, Whether what, what the these are. It's not, not well defined there. But I do think there's one thing we could say about it that, that Leon Morris has an interesting thought because he, he says that he believes that in the threefold question there is another issue that comes up because Peter, back at, just before the transfiguration, Jesus had told him that I'm going to go up to Jerusalem and I'm going to be you know, beaten up and I'm going to die. You remember that Peter at that point said, Not so! That is not who you are. <laughs> it's not who you are. You remember Peter's rebuke at that point. Get behind me, Satan. And uh, Leon Morris has suggested the threefold question is there for another reason. The other reason is this. Peter, do you love me as I actually am? Or do you love me for what you think I am? What you want me to be? You see, sometimes we have a tendency to read the Bible. We don't like parts of it because that doesn't, that's not the God I want to, it's not the way I want it to be. I would like him to be this instead of that. I don't like what it says there, but it's who he is. But anyway, back to the point, Peter, do you love me? He says, yes, Lord, I love you. And then what is, what's the Lord's? Tend my lambs. I think it's real important there that we get, tend my lambs. He doesn't give him a rehabilitation program. He doesn't tell him why he had made a mistake and how he could avoid that in the future. What well, he says, Peter, do you love me? If you do, get to work with the things I love. I love those people. They are what I'm concerned about, Peter. If you love me, do this. And he goes through that three times. It's, there's no real change in the whole thing. There's nuances, but... If you love me, get involved in this. What is the essence of sanctification process? Coming to the place where we love the Lord Jesus Christ. And because we love the Lord Jesus Christ, we love what he loves. If you don't love what he loves, then you don't love him. You don't love him. But if you love what he loves, then you devote yourself to it. This is exactly what the Lord had said to earlier in the book of John. Um, in that night before he was crucified, he has a long speech, with a long talk with his disciples to prepare them. We, we noted a number of passages from that. And in there he says two things, which are important. He says, if you love me, keep my commandments. But he also says it another way. If you, do, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He who has my commandments and keeps them, he's the one that loves me. Now, what was the Lord's commandment to Peter? 
It didn't have to do with a whole lot of laws about righteousness, about purity. It had to do with what? Devote your life to taking care of the thing I love, my church, his sheep. Take care of it, Peter. Get involved in that. And just in case there's any question about what, what this means to Peter, he, after this is the three times he asks him, and he says, this, Peter, when you were young, you used to go wherever you want to go, but when you're old, someone else is going to take you where you don't want to go. And it tells us in the passage that Jesus was letting him know the kind of death by which he would glorify God. This is going to cost you everything, Peter. To serve me will cost you everything. And I'm willing to accept that. I'm willing to accept the fact that for my own sheep, and I love you, Peter, but it's going to lead you to a cross just like it led me to a cross. And if you love me, take care of my sheep, even though that, that place of taking care of my sheep will put you in a place where you run head on into the Roman Empire and it's fierceness against me and you're going to die this death it's going to cost you everything and in the fact that peter went through with all that the righteousness of the law was fulfilled in peter he loved the lord his god with all of his heart and he loved his neighbor as himself he put the needs of the church higher than his own needs and that's something we'll say one last thing about the story and then we'll finish here Peter then looks at John and says, what about him? Okay, he's not sanctified yet. All right, so we're working on this. <clears throat> what about him? What about John? And there's an important word comes up there. You leave John with me. It'll be the same thing for him. But you, you leave John with me. And what's he do? He turns to him and says, you follow me. Join me. Join me in my path. It's very important tonight to note. Your path might be different than my path. The paths that we have, why do some suffer this way? Why do some go through this? I don't know. That's up to the shepherd of the sheep. I shouldn't be jealous of those who suffer less. I shouldn't be bitter about, or, you know, I shouldn't. Anyway, it, it shouldn't interfere with my life because it's not between me and you. It's between you and the shepherd. It's between me and the shepherd. My job is to do what? To love him with all my heart. That's what he's working towards. And then loving him with all my heart to give the energies he gives me to the building up of the thing that he loves on this earth. And the one thing he really loves is his church. Whether that's the love for the, the people who are outside the church and evangelism and bringing them in or the building up of the people around me so that all of them, every one of them, even the ones that are backward and slow and all the rest of it, until they all attain. Isn't that something that we're pushing each other up until we all attain to that measure of the stature, till we look like Jesus. And until it happens, we got to keep working. Patiently working. Constantly working. Why? Because he loves it. He loves his church. We love him. We'll love that. Now, before we ever get down to the question of how we're going to be delivered from impurity or anger or details, we have to see what he's really after. It's not just that I should be pure. It's not just that I should be calm. It's not just that I should be courageous. It is that I should love him and have his life in me to such an extent 
that that means blessing to people around me. It means the purpose of God not only being being fulfilled in my life, but being fulfilled in the lives of those who are right around. So we ask the question tonight again. it's, It's legitimate. What do you really love? This is where we have to drop back, right? If this is where the Spirit of God is leading us, where is it that you've devoted your energies? Because you love the thing where you put the energies of your life. That's what you love. Right? What is it? The Lord would say to all of us, I mean, to every one of us, he's going to be constantly saying this because it's the, it is the sanctifying process of him day after day. Say, Art, do you love me more than these Do you love me more than anything else you can put on the table? Do you? Take care of my my people. Devote yourself to those around. So what do you love tonight? What do you love? That's that's a big question. What do I love? That's a question. What's God going to do for us? He's going to bring us along a path. He has a plan to enable us for this. You don't have it yourself. I can't. You have new life in Jesus Christ. You have the power of the Spirit of God working towards this end. You, the, the force of God, which we, we saw a couple weeks ago, is called the reign of grace. Just as we are right now dying because we're under the reign of sin. Right? It still is there. It still will take all of our bodies down. But there's a reign of grace which is going to make sure that those who go through that process, is again right after this in, in Romans chapter 8, those who go through the process of death, their bodies die. Yet because of that righteousness in Christ, they will live. The Spirit of God will cause energy to come back into my body because this, just as there is a force driving me down, there is a force building up. And every day it becomes better and better because we're closer to that experience. What's the essence of the law? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and your neighbor as yourself. What is sanctification about? It's about God bringing that to pass in our lives. So again, we finished tonight asking the same question. What is it that we really love? What's the Lord telling you about? You make choices of love. What are you doing with it? Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we ask you to bring us into that experience. We thank you for the way we can trust you. We thank you that your path is the path of life, and we're coming and asking you to work in us by the Spirit of God, have that confidence to believe you, to trust you, so that we can let go of our life on this earth and lay hold of the grace of God and live for that which is eternal. And we trust you for it and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.